The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Welcome to Word Wang, the spin-off series with a difference, and that difference is words. Joining me tonight are Julie from Yorkshire and Simon, who is from a factory and made from a special metal. <laughs> so, Julie, ever killed a man? No. Simon? Yes. Great, let's play Word Wang. <laughs> Round one, Julie to play first. Shed. Trowel. Buzz. Sorry, are you buzzing in? No. That's Word Wang. <laughs> Simon? Smear. Towards. Fastidious. That's word wang. On to round three, animals. Simon? Mattress. That's word wang. However. That's word wang. Deforesting. That's word wang. Lineage. Oh, bad luck, Julie. That's not an animal. You lose two letters. So, Uli, it's you to start as we move on to the word board. Today's categories, countries of the world. Um, I'll take Bethania, Finland, and the Independent Republic of Yeb. That's word wang. Simon? Um, I'll have um, Mimji, Wantistan, and uh, Ireland. Oh, bad luck, Simon. I'm afraid Ireland's not a vegetable. You lose three letters. So, as we enter the final round, Im, you're leading with tarpaulin, and Uli, you're trailing with H. It's time for you both to face the word wangerator. Let's rotate the ball. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January the 5th, 2023. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. What better way to kick off the new year than with a discussion about words? Our word-wang opener today was a wonderful illustration of Marxist ideology in action. <laughs> well, welcome to Clown World. You know, Marxism being a philosophy for fools, in which concepts are irrationally applied. This, of course, is in reference to Isabel Patterson's God of the Machine, from which we recently quoted the following passage, and which is key to our discussion today, and I quote, Marx was a fool with a large vocabulary of long words. Marxist terminology reduces verbal expression to literal nonsense on the basis of fact and usage. For example, let it be said that an isosceles triangle is green. The whole statement is absurd. That is bad enough, but it would be rather worse if one spoke of the roundness of a triangle. The phrase, dictatorship of the proletariat, is like the roundness of a triangle, a contradiction in terms. It has no meaning. This is specifically the language of fools, for the deficiency, which is indicated by the word fool, is the incapacity to understand categories and the relation of things and qualities." End quote. So in order to avoid becoming fools ourselves, or at least to avoid being fooled, let us follow the science of epistemology, shall we? Epistemology is defined as a science devoted to the discovery of the proper methods of acquiring and validating knowledge, while knowledge, in turn, is defined as a mental grasp of the facts of reality, reached either by perceptual observation or by a process of reason based on perceptual observation. 
But even though knowledge alone is not truth, epistemology is ultimately the science of truth, and more than that, it is the means to discover lies and falsehoods, as we will come to understand right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now, in any search for truth, it is always good to know what it looks like when you find it. Otherwise, you might miss a truth even in front of your eyes. Quoting from the Ayn Rand lexicon, Truth. Truth is the recognition of reality. Reason is man's only means of knowledge and is his only standard of truth. Truth is the product of the recognition, that is, identification, of the fact of reality. Man identifies and integrates the facts of reality by means of concepts. He retains concepts in his mind by means of definitions. He organizes concepts into propositions, and the truth or falsehood of his propositions rests not only on their relation to the facts he asserts, but also on the truth or falsehoods of the definitions, of the concepts that he uses to assert them. The truth or falsehood of all of man's conclusions, inferences, thought, and knowledge rests on the truth or falsehood of his definitions, end quote. Now, we have quoted that particular passage many times on the show because that's basically what this show is about. This show is about epistemology and trying to discover the truth, what is really happening out there. Now, you may have noticed that each and every episode, our show begins with a distinction, not right-wing, just right. As trivial, or as simply a play on words that this distinction may seem to some, I put it to you that it is the most profound and important message that we express each and every week. But I'll save that argument for the end of our show today. For now, let us begin with the understanding that the political world is a world of abstractions. Left and right, conservatives and liberals, capitalism and communism, tyranny and freedom, you can go on forever. Abstractions are words, they're concepts, and definitions that describe relationships, ideas, philosophies, and a whole host of realities that do not exist in concrete form. That is, in a form physically, in a way that could be touched or directly observed with the senses. These abstractions are represented by verbal auditory symbols that we call words. And here's where we begin to run into objections. The belief that the world is too complicated to be understood in simple terms defined by words and concepts is the only thing that makes things complicated. It's like saying, all we have to fear is fear itself, right? And I hear that sentiment expressed in many ways, usually by those who do not want things to be understandable. They want the world to appear highly complex, so that, of course, only experts and politicians are given the authority to solve our problems. 
Now, you could make the same argument about simple arithmetic <laughs> by arguing that since numbers can be very complex and even extend into infinity, to grasp them all is too complicated for the human mind. No one is able to conceptualize, say, 2,500,224 of anything in their minds visually. But abstractly, conceptualizing the given quantity represented by numeric symbols is easy. All you need to know is the definitions of each of the numeric symbols. Now, in the language of arithmetic, there are only ten symbols in the entire vocabulary. The words of arithmetic, you might say. Those symbols range from zero to nine, each with a specific definition, that being the assigned value that is given to that representation. And all numbers and values greater than 9 or less than 0 can be accurately represented by these mere 10 symbols because of the rules, or we might call it the grammar of arithmetic, which are based on four basic operations. The epistemology of arithmetic, you might say. Addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Once you've grasped and mastered those basic numerical values and operations, you have the complete freedom and ability to solve any numerical calculation. And if you don't make a mistake along the way, and this is the really cool part, you will arrive at the very same conclusion or result as any other individual on the planet faced with the same problem. So what has all this got to do with our language issue? Well, consider this. What if the value of one of the numbers was arbitrarily redefined? Suppose the number 7, instead of representing what we know to be 7 of something, which is an abstraction without a concrete, suppose we change that number 7 suddenly to represent 5 of something or 3 of something, and who knows, maybe two months from now, some other value. What do you suppose that would do to the entire field of mathematics? You guessed it. It would collapse overnight. And that, in a nutshell, is what we are seeing happen before our very eyes when it comes to the verbal language that we use to express and define the concepts on which we depend to survive and to live. In an information war, the main weapons are concepts, and the overriding rule is define or be defined. And to illustrate that very principle for us in the context of today's zeitgeist, on this side of our upcoming bumper, we'll be hearing some 2023 definitional predictions made by the rebel media's David Menzies, while on the return, Michael Knowles explains the strategy behind concept destruction. Hey folks, it used to be that my year-end video would focus on cheeky predictions regarding those things and those words that would likely be eradicated in the year ahead due to that ideological virus known as political correctness. You know the drill, a Christmas tree is now a holiday tree or a signature tree or simply a tree. As well, so it is that native-themed sports team nicknames such as Indians, Eskimos, and Redskins have come under the PC Tomahawk. These clubs have now been rebranded as Guardians, Elks, and Commanders, thanks to pearl-clutching liberal soy boys who imagine that natives might be offended by native monikers when, in fact, the data proves the precise opposite is true. 
Sadly, it's inevitable that Braves, Chiefs, and Blackhawks are destined for the PC slaughterhouse sooner rather than later. That's truly a shame, especially when it comes to Chicago's NHL franchise, given that the Blackhawks logo is arguably the most beautiful graphic design in the entire sports world. Alas, political correctness, which is a code phrase for not stating the truth lest anyone gets offended by the truth, has only gone worse in the last few years. Much worse. I mean, do you know you're not supposed to call an alcoholic an alcoholic anymore? Rather, the tall forehead folks at the National Institute on Drug Abuse would prefer you use the term, quote, person with alcohol use disorder, end quote. Likewise, an addicted baby must now be referred to as a, quote, baby born to mother who used drugs while pregnant, end quote. Oh, gracious. Didn't the nattering nabobs who comprise the National Institute on Drug Abuse get the memo? Mother is under the ban these days in certain circles, the correct term being chest feeder. You know, just in case some 350-pound dude with a beard and his original wedding tackle still intact identifies as female. Oh, shame, shame, shame on you, National Institute on Drug Abuse. In fact, these days, the term political correctness is in itself kind of passe, being replaced by such terms as wokeism and cancel culture. Yeah, talk about the perverse irony here. The descriptor political correctness is actually politically incorrect itself in some circles. Oh, it's so complicated. Anyway, in the spirit of eradicating and rebranding, allow me to make predictions of those things that will be likely deemed verboten in 2023 and beyond. Oh, and in case you think I'm being overly outrageous in my predictions, please consider this. In 2018, I prophesized that the term brainstorming would come under the ban because this word might be construed as a mocking term for people suffering from mental illness. I was being savagely sarcastic, of course, especially given that brainstorming has absolutely nothing to do with mental illness. Well, can you believe it, folks? After that prediction aired, a few viewers from the United Kingdom reached out to inform me that the eradication of brainstorming had actually come to fruition way back in 2008. The Tunbridge Wells Borough Council in Kent, England, decided that this word was deemed verboten due to the fact that, drumroll please, brainstorming might be offensive to mentally ill people and those suffering from epilepsy. I swear. So it was that an edict was issued in which brainstorming came under the ban. The replacement word? Thought showers. No, folks, I swear, I'm not making this up thought showers. That's just golden, isn't it? Anyway, let's get on with it, shall we? Here are my predictions for those things that might be kind of tolerated in the here and now, but are surely due for rebranding in 2023. For example, number one, ships shall no longer be referred to by the pronoun she. I mean, how do you know if a boat identifies as a she, her, 
as opposed to a he, him, or a zzer, or a vver, or an em, or a ver v, or an mr. By the way, these are actually indeed bona fide gender pronouns, folks, at least in the minds of some quacks out there. Number two, the term trans fats shall be renamed by the food science community. Trans fat shall instead be called saturated fatty acids so that the term trans fats does not cause offense to those gender bending lard boys and lardettes who make up the obese transgender community of which there are many by the way. Number three, that big fish known as the great white shark shall be rebranded re for obvious reasons. Namely, the words great and white can never be uttered together in the same descriptor because that kind of hints at Caucasian exceptionalism, and we can't have that, can we now? Four, the term scalping and scalper in regard to those entrepreneurs who sell tickets for sp sold out sports matches and music concerts will no longer be tolerated as this might be deemed as cultural appropriation. Moving forward, the correct woke term for scalper shall be ticket reseller professional. Five, the entomologist community shall issue an edict demanding that white Anglo-Saxon Protestants stop being referred to as wasps in case any members of the beekeeping community are offended. So happy new year to one and all, or at least for those of you who are marking time via the Gregorian calendar, that is, my apologies in advance for those who are not. For Rebel News, I'm David the Menzoid Menzies. Words are losing their meaning which is ultimately the goal, so that we can't reason. The, Orwell writes about this beautifully in 1984. He says the, the, the Ingsoc regime, the Big Brother regime, thrives on all sorts of things, you know, changing the language through newspeak and the surveillance, but especially through doublethink. The, the idea that they will, that the regime will force you to hold mutually contradictory ideas in your head at the same time. So in your head, you've got to hold the idea that two plus two equals four and two plus two equals five, let's say, just to pull an example out. If you hold those ideas in your head at the same time, it makes you unable and unwilling to think rationally. If you have to hold the idea in your mind that our true selves have nothing to do with our bodies and our true selves are just our bodies and nothing more, and you have to hold those in your head at exactly the same time, you can't think rationally. And that is ultimately, ultimately the goal because what political correctness or wokeism or cancel culture, whatever you want to call these left-wing ideologies or left-wing instruments, they are ultimately less about the arguments they're making than the imposition of the rules. That's why the PC jargon changes all the time. It doesn't really matter what jargon you're using. It's the imposition of it. Can these ideologues weaken your understanding of the world so much that you are vulnerable for them to impose their will, not their intellect, not their arguments, but their will on you? Unfortunately, for a lot of people, the answer to that question is yes. 
This past week I watched a December 1622 interview online that ran for nearly three hours and I watched the whole thing not just once, but twice. It was a conversation between someone relatively new to me, Lex Friedman, who has interviewed some very prominent people in the past, and someone with whom I am quite familiar, Michael Malice, who has recently released his book entitled The White Pill. And like me, Malice is a fan of Ayn Rand, but very unlike me, or Rand, he describes himself as an anarchist. My understanding is that the two conversants are close friends and both come from the Ukraine-Russia area, which gives Malice some unique insights to the Russian character. During their three-hour conversation, they discussed at least 20 entirely different subjects. And out of all the topics they discussed, I chose three to share with you today. Those topics are, one, the appeal of tyrannies, namely communism and socialism, two, the situation in Iran and its implications, and three, the issue of political polarization, which is the most profound and important discussion they had, and the one to which I referred at our show's opening today. So, on the appeal of communism and socialism that Malice is about to describe, beware that he's looking at them from the viewpoint of those to whom these tyrannies appeal. And although everything he says is right on the money, there is something very seriously wrong with the premise or context of this discussion. See if you can spot it before I point it out on our return. I remember somebody told me that from the very beginning it was obvious that communism is an evil system that would, or a system that leads to evil. And uh, if I had to put, put myself in the beginning of the 20th century or at the end of the 19th century, that's totally not obvious. They are trying to elevate humanity, the, the basic worth of a human being, of, of a hardworking human being, of the working class, of the people that are doing the work and are striving and just uh, really trying to build up society with their own hands. It just seems like a beautiful ideal. Uh, so I guess the question is, can you see yourself believing in that in, in the ideas of socialism and communism. Yeah, let's say if you were living in Russia. Oh yeah, easily. So first of all, I, I don't think anything is obvious in politics. Uh, it's not obvious that you know uh, humans have rights. It's not obvious that liberty is better or the markets either. Either whether you're for you know a welfare state or you're for more free markets, neither of those is obvious. Both of them involve an enormous amount of thought and background information. So when someone says something is obvious in politics, they really mean something is apparent. Well, it's not apparent on its face mm -hmm. that if we all get together and promote a society based on equality and we all chip in, that it's gonna really be good for everyone. I mean, that to me is the promise of communism. And it was also very appealing to many people because it was new. So the idea was, all right, We've tried it these other ways. There's all these negative consequences. You have all these slums. You have people getting, you know, fired and then they have no recourse. You have women with 10 kids uh, and they can't feed their kids. Infant mortality. You have, don't have sanitation. You don't have food. You know, everyone's illiterate and uneducated. And then here's saying, look, if we all chip in together, everyone will have clothes. Everyone will have food. Everyone will be educated. Everyone will do their part. It's going to be rough in the short period. That's a very compelling case to be made for communism. It's really easy in many ways when something hasn't been tried to make it sound uh, compelling because you just talk about how great it's going to be 
you know, people are always arguing about like Venezuela and Sweden, like, oh, we, you know, you want democratic socialism to be like Sweden. You don't want it to be like Venezuela. The Venezuelans didn't vote for Venezuela. They voted for Sweden. They ended up with Venezuela. And the thing with the communism, especially at that era, it was very much correlated with uh, people who were too smart for their own good. Mm -hmm. Because they had the idea that if we're just put in charge, instead of these like business people or these heirs to great estates, if the people who are smart and get it like us, I don't mean you and me, like the people at the time who were advocating for it, once we're in charge, since we're good people and we want what's best for everyone, um, we're going to make sure everyone's taken care of. And, you know, they always talked about how much they cared about the little guy. And so I'm sure some of them meant it a lot. And they're like, look, if the guy in charge is very much concerned with the little guy, he's not going to slip between the cracks and it's just going to be absolutely great. Um, and we don't have to worry about, you know, uh, you know, the capitalist class just basically exploiting people and having these huge estates while these people can't even feed their own families. Since we have a little bit of momentum, can you steal me on the case for socialism at that time and even today? I don't know if it's, I don't know if there's a rhyme and a similarity to those, to socialism as implemented at that time and what could possibly be implemented today, but maybe you can dance between the two. The steel man argument for socialism is if you have everything up to private industry, you do not have a guarantee that someone won't fall between the cracks. And the other concern is, in any other context, if someone is, let's suppose, mentally ill, right, through no fault of their own, and they are, or someone's handicapped, you know, they can't feed themselves or mentally disabled or something like that. If you have everything up to charity, some, if this, you see this with like endangered species, right? The species that are cute, it's easy to raise money for them and protect them. Some weird kind of frog somewhere that no one cares about, you can't raise money for it. There's people's interests are to what they find interesting. So if someone is someone who's like not socially appealing in some way, whatever capacity, they're going to fall between the cracks and they're screwed. Under socialism, if you have a government taking care of everything, no one is left behind. You are guaranteed that the lowest of the low and the worst of the worst are still going to make sure that they're not starving the street or uh, just left behind. So that is a big moral case to be made for having the state running everything. In terms of economics, it's a lot harder. Um, but the argument there would be, it's why it's, it's not fair, a term which in my view does not actually have a good meaning, but it's not fair that because you were born a Rockefeller and I was born in Poland, that you never have to worry about food for the rest of your life, whereas I have to worry about, you know, paying for a doctor for my kid. Like you just, you, you won this lottery when you're born and now I have to be screwed and I have to respect all your property. Why? So um, that is another strong argument to be made for socialism. And the other argument is if you have a media apparatus that is operated under profit-seeking principles, it is going to feed into people's worst qualities, most basic animal-like qualities and sensationalist qualities, and will be used as a mechanism for capitalist control. Whereas if the government, which represents all of us, all of us is running things, then everyone will have a right to have their voice heard and won't be manipulated. That's the argument. What about the reaching towards the stateless version? 
sort of uh, because you espouse the ideas of uh, anarchism, it kind of has the same conclusion, which mm -hmm. is reaching towards the removal of the state to where we, I guess, have uh, some distributed reallocation of resources that are quote unquote fair. But the thing is, the the Marxist vision of the state withering away and uh, becoming anarchism, it's really kind of like um, the underpants gnomes, because it's like step, tell me more. I, I will. Step one. Hmm? You have Marxism. Tell me slowly. <laughs> I'm sorry. You have full communism. The state's running everything, including education. Step two, question mark. Step three, anarchism. So their idea was that after enough time, the nature of man himself was going to change. Changed, And then the government would be superfluous because we would all be uh, equal and we would all naturally or socially, whatever term they would use, want to act the part that we would need to do. And in fact, Reagan had a great joke about this where there were two where uh, there were two commissars, I think, in Moscow. And one of them, they're walking around, they're going, is this it? Uh, is this full, have we done it? Have we reached full communism? The other goes, oh no, it's gonna get a hell of a lot worse. So, you know, that's kind of the, the counter argument to that. Do you think culture, society can change the nature of man? No. So no matter, you don't think this idea that, uh, for example, America has been founded on, that all men are created equal, that that idea can't permeate the culture and in thereby change how we see each other, how we think of the basic worth of a human being, and that's thereby the change our nature? That doesn't no? change our, that's epigenetic. I don't, I don't think that that changes the nature of man. I think, for example, if I say someone, which I agree with, that someone is innocent until proven guilty, they're not literally innocent. They're regarded in a legal context as innocent, but that person is or is not a murderer or thief or so on and so forth. So we can legally and ethically regard everyone as equal, but as Thomas Sowell pointed out, a human being isn't even equal to himself over the course of a day. Twins who are genetic clones are not equal to one another. So it is a important thing legally and it's a good yardstick, but it's not literally true. But don't you think that law becomes ethics? So we, um, we, we that like idea of justice starts to like, we start to internalize it, that we just, the way we behave, the way we think about the world. No, the way I, we... I, I think it's a complete red herring because no one is- No, you're a red herring. Okay. <laughs> See what I did there? Selotka. Um, because someone is, people are still going to always prefer their family to strangers or their in-group to out-group. So mm -hmm. in terms of if you're gonna have equality, that means it's gonna not matter to you whether someone is your mom or someone is, you know, someone down the street. And I don't see how that will ever become the case. of Number Wang, the numbers show that simply everyone is talking about yes. Let's welcome our two contestants. It's Julie from Anglesey and Simon, who is from Anglesey. So, Julie, do you any singing up there in Anglesey? Yes. Simon? No, 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 I don't sing in Anglesey. Why would I sing? For can't you see? I cannot sing. Oh, what a shame. Right, bit of a change this week on Number Wang, because instead of starting with round one, we're going to start with round one. So, let's play Number Wang. 
Julie, you go first. Seven. Simon? Two. Forty-six. Eight. One and a half. Nope, none of those are number wang. Fifty? No. Nine? Nought? No. A million? No. Infinity? No. Infinity and a half? You can't have infinity and a half. Oh, five. Simon? Uh, six point two seven eight five. No. Uh, one and a half. You've already said that. Uh. Um, vase. That's not a number, Julie. I can't think of any more numbers. What a situation we have here. Unprecedented in the history of number wang. That alarm means it's been three whole days without anyone getting number wang, which means we have a sudden death tie break. <laughs> Julie, Simon, please step into the pods of sudden death. <laughs> The rules are simple. The one of you to die first wins. OK, Julie, Simon, are you both ready? Then let's release the number gas. You may be interested to know that today's number gas is made from the number two, which you may remember from school is deadly to humans. <laughs> yes, Julie's gone. That is number one. Well done, Julie. Simon desperately trying to inhale the deadly number gas there, but it's too little too late. Simon, you've lost. Join us next time for more number wang, but until then, good number wang! You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. So, did you spot the problem? The missing element of the discussion about communism and socialism. Well, to make a long story short, it's this. There was no definition given for either communism or socialism, and the definition would have made the evil of communism obvious from the outset. The critical error that people make in judging the merits of collectivism is that they judge it by its proponents' motivations, intentions, and promises, and not by its nature and identity. And of course, none of those promises or objectives are even possible under socialism or communism. Friedman says he was told it was obvious communism would lead to an evil system when communism is the evil system, period. From each according to his ability to each according to his need? I mean, that is as evil a concept as anyone could ever conjure. It's a prescription for slavery and tyranny and could lead to nothing else. Remember, the only means available to accomplish that is the use of state force against private individuals. So when people say that socialism is a good way to help those in need, they're literally saying that using a gun is an okay way to help people. But other than that, it was an insightful conversation. And again, we see the leftist idea of attempting to change the nature of man to fit in with their irrational ideologies, which is in stark contrast to the right's attempt to develop a social system that is consistent with the nature of man. And of course, that's always freedom. Now, moving on. Here are their other two selected conversation topics, including a brief comment offered by Harrison Smith, after which I'll have plenty to say. That said, uh, I'd love to get your thoughts about what's going on in Iran, the protests. It seems like the, the regime there is able to uh, crack down with violence. My thoughts about Iran, let me just, there's something else about Iran which I think is interesting. This whole idea of care for what you wish for. 
because people have this and something I kind of one of the reasons I have the white pill is Americans really are very naive about the nature of evil, right? They really think that a dictator has a weird mustache and he's banging the table and he's you know like a crazy person, and it's often not the case. But they also think if something is bad, therefore the alternative is going to be better. Um, so you had the Shah of Iran, and he was kind of authoritarian and um, no, he's not a good guy. So in 1979, there were a lot of people like, this guy's a horrible. He's oppressing the Iranian people. Let's get him the F out of there. He's so bad that whatever comes after it is, has to be an improvement. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, that's, if you think, I mean, this drives me crazy when conservatives are like, you know, Joe Biden's the worst president we ever had. Like this is destroying America. I'm like, you have no idea how bad things can get. The fact that you are in a position to complain means we've got a ways to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every time you say that Donald Trump or Joe Biden is the worst president ever, that, that warms my heart because, the, <laughs> you're, because you're allowed to say that. Yes, yeah. It's like, I just let it, it's like music because you're, you're allowed to be pretty, in response to a president's tweet, you can write that. Yeah. Yeah. And it still lives there and it's and nobody uh arrests you. Yeah. Which is a rare thing in human history. Yes. And still a rare thing in the world. I mean, what it does seem that Iran, the current regime is able to crack down on communication channels. It's still it's surprising to me how much power a government can have. Like they could use violence to control the population. Right. And nobody's going to do anything about it. Well, I, I just, the rest of the world just watches. But here's the thing, right? Because if the rest of the world starts doing too much, then they have a justification to crack down even more. This regime, this protests are not legitimate. These are this happened constantly in the Soviet Union. These are foreign provocateurs. Yeah. Uh, this is in, you know meddling in our country. Uh, uh, curfew, lockdown. ID, you know, mandatory searches, everyone's a spy. So that narrative is a very convenient one for people who are authoritarian. Um, I know a lot of people who are Persian, as I'm sure you do as well. Uh, very hardworking, very bright, great people. Um, and, you know, all you could do is hope for a peaceful uh, liberalization of your... But here's the, people don't realize how liberal Iran used to be. Andy Warhol... Andy Warhol used to be friends with the Shah. And if you read his, his diaries, he talks about how he knew things weren't going well for the Shah because they had less caviar at the table. But like this is, he was really kind of, there's, there's I think a poor understanding in America, and I'm not sure why, of what these liberal Muslim countries are like. Um, I gave a talk in Bodrum in Turkey, which is like a resort town in Turkey. And I had thought previous to that, or I had suspected if push comes to shove and they have to choose people in Turkey between the West and like Al Qaeda, not Al Qaeda, but like, you know, uh, hardcore Islam, they're going to choose hardcore Islam. You go there and you're like, oh, this is like Los Angeles. Like mm -hmm. these people are so liberal, so, and they're the first to be killed. They're the first targets. So that people like that in Iran are who my thoughts are. And with, the, I got to tell you, like nothing makes me more of a feminist than seeing the women in countries like this fight for the right to education, the right to dress as they please, 
Maybe we don't need them driving, but, you know, that's okay. There he is with that characteristic, brilliant humor. The World Economic Forum and their associated globalist organizations are basically coming out and saying that first it was COVID, soon it'll be climate change, and you ain't seen nothing yet. Let's watch. Healthcare professionals have said to me, if you think COVID is bad, when it comes to climate change, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's the grandmother of all health threats. COVID and climate change are compounding each other, and they're adding pressures on already weak health systems and staff. And it's why business as usual is not an option. And it's why now we need to truly have health at the center of all our policies, energy, transport, agriculture, water, and food. And food, yeah. So in other words, as they restrict water, as they restrict and destroy the ability to produce agriculture at scale, as they constrict and eliminate our food supply lines, they'll be doing it under the excuse of climate change. World Health Organization, World Economic Forum, all working together to give the climate scam the same intensity as they did COVID. So they're letting you know that. But this is the World Economic Forum saying again that they had a little bit of trouble with COVID. So maybe we need a quote, recalibration, just like we're reimagining justice in this country. We're reimagining human rights on a global scale. We are finding ourselves in a place um, where we're, we have increasing polarization everywhere and everything feels binary when it doesn't need to be. So I think we're going to have to think about a recalibration of a whole range of human rights that are playing out online, you know, from freedom of speech to the freedom to, you know, to be free from on online violence or the uh, right of data protection to the right to child dignity. Mm, the right to child dignity. Tell you what, if anybody in your life starts looking at your child and drooling and saying, we need to talk about his right to dignity, uh, you need to get your child, get the hell out of there. For any layman, when they're looking at this, to realize what you are perceiving as news or information is very much sculpted, edited, and guided by powerful people who have a vested interest in maintaining their uh, power. I think to me, the important lesson is this is not a left or right thing. Oh, not at all. It's power versus being, powerless, yes. But I think realistically, human nature is what it is. And so I think the only way is through transparency. Is This is why the nice, I, I hate the fact they got politicized. I, I really hate that the right has have run with it. Like, look, the left is planning the rigged elections and so on. To me, that's, it shouldn't be left or right. It shouldn't be about politics. It's that transparency is good. Other yes. companies should do the same. Facebook should do the same. And in fact, th that transparency will protect Facebook. It will protect Google. I like, look, like this is our situation. Tell us what to do and we'll do our best. And I just want to use this opportunity to say quite clearly and strongly that even though Twitter and other parts of the internet are, in are interpreting some of my statements to mean I'm right, in this case, meaning leaning right, right wing, and in other cases, leaning left, left wing, I'm not. I'm apolitical, or at least I try to be in my thinking. Take one issue at a time. 
I do take an opinion on each issue at a time, but I hate camps. I, I try to avoid political camps in general. It just, it sucks that promoting transparency in this case or celebrating transparency um, is somehow connected to being right-wing. No, it's being made into so supposed euphemism for being right-wing. It just, it, it sucks. Uh, it sucks. Before I address Lex Fridman's absolutely misguided, contradictory, and sucky attitude about his political orientation, very disappointing to say the least, let me first commend Michael Malice for his Iran commentary and observations, which completely reflected our own take on Iran that we broadcast on January 30th, 2020. That episode was called Iran's Love Affair with America. And the picture accompanying that broadcast will give you some idea of what Malice was talking about when he said it was like Los Angeles. Whatever you think you know about Iran, think again. And as if to demonstrate how people around the world are pretty much all the same, especially on the political front, take heed of Michael Malice's Be Careful What You Wish For warning. One of the first observations I made way back in the 1980s during the formation of the Freedom Party of Ontario was that in fighting against and resisting oppression, most people do not choose to move towards freedom, but simply away from whatever perceived oppression they want to escape. They do this by moving towards anyone or anything that can replace their current manifestation of that oppression. Although just about everybody succumbs to this, the people most guilty of it, and I say guilty, they're called conservatives because they're the ones who repeatedly pretend to be in favor of freedom and capitalism, but who never, never in my entire history of observing Canadian politics both federally and provincially, never even once move in the right direction on anything. People are always running away from oppression but never towards freedom. They merely move from one oppressor to the next. In Canada, this is called progressive conservatism. The right and the left wing versions of liberal conservative, liberal conservative, liberal conservative, and then just for good measure, the occasional New Democrat or Green Party. Every one of them is on the left. They are all statist to their core. The whole premise of statism and here I'm quoting Ayn Rand, is that every person's life and work belong to the state, to society, the group, the gang, the race, the nation, and that the state may dispose of them in any way it pleases for the sake of whatever it deems to be its own tribal collective good. A statist system, whether communist, fascist, Nazi, socialist, or welfare, is based on government unlimited power, which means on the rule of brute force. The differences among statist systems are only a matter of time and degree. The principle is the same. Under statism, the government is not a policeman, but a legalized criminal who holds the power to use physical force in any manner and for any purpose against legally disarmed, defenseless victims. Nothing can ever justify so monstrously evil a theory. Nothing can justify the horror, the brutality, the plunder, the destruction, the starvation, the slave labor camps, the torture chambers, the wholesale slaughter of statist dictatorships. Government control of a country's economy 
to any kind or degree of such control by any group for any purpose whatever rests on the basic principle of statism, the principle that man's life belongs to the state, end quote. And most notably, that last sentence came from Rand's essay, Conservatism, an Obituary, which we have featured at least a few times on past broadcasts. But here's where the rubber hits the road. The entirely misunderstood issue of polarization, which is seen as something negative by most people when it is exactly its opposite. I mean, here we have two declared fans of Ayn Rand, and they're both objecting to the polarization of politics. A polarization that, by the way, is represented by left and right. And an issue that Ayn Rand made it a point to address in her first essay of her first edition of the Ayn Rand Letter, Volume 1, Number 1, October 11, 1971, and it was titled, are you ready for this? Credibility and Polarization. And I quote, and this is important. Intellectual confusion is the hallmark of the 20th century, induced by those whose task it is to provide enlightenment modern intellectuals. One of their methods is the destruction of language, and therefore of thought, and therefore of communication by means of anti-concepts. An anti-concept is an unnecessary and rationally unusable term designed to replace and obliterate some legitimate concept. The use of anti-concepts gives the listener a sense of approximate understanding. But in the realm of cognition, nothing is as bad as the approximate. If, loaded with too many approximations, you find yourself giving up the attempt to understand today's world, check your premises and the words that you are hearing. One of today's fashionable anti-concepts is, quote-unquote, polarization. Its meaning is not very clear except that it's something bad, undesirable, socially destructive, evil, something that would split the country into irreconcilable camps and conflicts. It is used mainly in political issues and serves as a kind of argument from intimidation. It replaces a discussion of the merits, the truth or falsehood, of a given idea by the menacing accusation that such an idea would polarize the country, which is supposed to make one's opponents retreat. Polarization is a term borrowed from physics. A dictionary defines polarity as the presence or manifestation of two opposite or contrasting principles or tendencies. Transplanted from the realm of physics to the realm of social issues, this term means a situation in which men hold opposite or contrasting views or ideas, principles, and goals or values, tendencies. When used as a pejorative term, this means that men should not differ in their views, their ideas, goals, and values, and that such differences are evil, that men must not disagree. Brought up on the philosophy of pragmatism, they have been taught that principles are unprovable, impractical, or non-existent, which has destroyed their ability to integrate ideas, to deal with abstractions, and to see beyond the range of the immediate moment. Like children and savages, they believe that human wishes are omnipotent, that everything would be all right if only we'd all agree on it, and anything can be solved by cooperation, negotiation, and compromise, right? Well, this has been the ruling doctrine in our political, academic, and intellectual life for the past 50 years or longer, with no noteworthy dissenters but one. Reality. <laughs> 
In the absence of intellectual polarization, we are witnessing the growth of the ugliest kind of divisiveness or existential polarization, if you will, pressure group warfare. The country is splitting into dozens of blind, deaf, but screaming camps, each drawn together not by loyalty to an idea, but by the accident of race, age, sex, religious creed, or the frantic whim of a given moment. Not by values held in common, but by a common hatred of some other group. Not by choice, but by terror. Is there a solution? Yes. What this country needs above all is the clarifying, reassuring confidence and credibility-inspiring guidance of fundamental principles, intellectual polarization. This would bring our cultural atmosphere an all-but-forgotten quality, honesty, with its corollary, clarity. It would enable men to know their own stand and that of their adversaries. What if men disagree, you ask? No open disagreement can be as destructive as the secret, nameless, virulent hostility now splintering the country. End quote. And on that point, Rand is in complete agreement with Lex Fridman's reluctant conclusion that the only way is through transparency. But here's where he completely derails himself. It sucks when celebrating transparency is connected to being right-wing, he says. Well, why would he say that? Does he honestly believe that the left would ever be in favor of transparency? The left is all about censorship and concept destruction. Doesn't that suck? Be careful what you wish for, Mr. Friedman. Consider who he's sharing his political bed with. The World Economic Forum, we just heard them. A completely fascist and leftist organization. Oh, we are having increasing polarization everywhere. Everything has gone binary when it doesn't need to be. We have to recalibrate the whole range of human rights that are playing out online. From freedom of speech to be free from online violence. Blah, blah, blah. Sound familiar? Oh, they don't want any binary polarization going on. No, sir. Hello? Fascism calling. They want to recalibrate human rights playing out online, which is a Marxist, meaningless, BS word. I mean, round squares and triangular colors. Human rights and online are two mutually exclusive categories. And one of the most nutty BS concepts is online violence, which is a metaphysical impossibility. Unless you're able to push a button on your keyboard and can physically strike or harm someone else online somewhere, online violence is a meaningless term. Words are not violent, but the left insists that they are, because they know that clear and accurate concepts will destroy their evil. So, you can understand my frustration when Lex Fridman and so many others on the right, who I generally like and agree with and love, continue to allow themselves to be disarmed in this way. I just want to say, I'm not right-wing or left-wing, I'm apolitical. I take one issue at a time. I hate camps. I mean, that's the worst political stance to take, and it's the left on steroids. But he's unable to discern that for all the reasons just outlined by Rand. Taking one issue at a time does not make one apolitical. It's impossible to be apolitical if you intend to take any stand on any issue, even if it's just one. Every political issue is discussed one issue at a time. How do you discuss all issues at once? And how can you discuss any single issue without drawing upon the principles of either left or right? It is not possible. Understand this. In politics, there are only two directions in which to move. Leftward towards tyranny or to the right where only freedom and capitalism reside. Anyone who tries to convince you that they are centrist or in the middle of the road or not political when making their political decisions is a person who is completely on the left by default. 
If the right represents freedom, then to choose any other option is to be against freedom and in favor of any variant of statism. But my guess is that Mr. Friedman is unaware of this real polarity, which is the cause of his confusion and frustration to the point where he finds himself lamenting that free speech and transparency are only to be found on the right. <laughs> I mean, he's a complete victim of concept destruction and has been politically disarmed on the political battlefield. And yeah, that does suck. Now, if you understood that the right is freedom, that the right is the transparency he seeks, etc., etc., then I don't think he'd be feeling so bad about himself and his illusionary dilemma. Which brings us back to my opening comment regarding our weekly show opener. Not right-wing, just right. Which I suggested is the most profound and important message we express each week. Now, here's why. Most people have been taught to believe that the so-called extreme right, another anti-concept, it's just right, is all about fascism. And in their quite virtuous attempt to avoid being associated with fascism, they just blindly reject the right entirely, only to find that if you favor freedom or capitalism or free speech, those values are nowhere to be found on any imaginary political spectrum that has been foisted upon the body politic. By the left, it must be understood. This is all part of the process of concept destruction. If you have no word for a given idea, then you have no way to even think about that idea, let alone express it. And another variant of this contradiction is the one that goes along the lines of left and right aren't useful labels anymore, even as those saying this cower from every accusation of being called right-wing. I'd call that pretty useful. <laughs> the very people immobilized by the mere suggestion of being labeled right are the ones declaring political labels to be useless. And yes, the wrong labels are useless because even in rejecting them, it is acknowledged that they're both the same thing. I can't see any difference between left and right, say many, never considering that if that's so, maybe they're both the same, and that one of the polarities is missing entirely. Again, I appeal to those who see themselves on the right to embrace that label for what it truly represents, individual freedom. Reject any notion of fascism being associated with anything right because it simply isn't so. And remember, without a label, you have no identity, especially in a field of politics where everything is identified according to labels. This presents us with a challenge few want to acknowledge. The fundamental reason that the left cannot tolerate transparency is because the left does not persuade nor debate. The left uses force. That is the entire operative principle of the left, and yes, that sucks. And even when it pretends to persuade, the left uses the force of fraud by which to obviate consent. And the fraud is perpetrated by destroying language and the concepts it represents. Vaccine, anyone? So, when it comes to the necessity of polarization, let me leave you with this challenging and very counterintuitive proposition. Are you ready? Divided we stand, united we fall. Think about it. At least until you join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Welcome back to the Word Wangerator Word up, Im
brisket. Oh, good. Uli? Parallel. Nice. 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 Nearly. Almost. Pinch. Embolden. Arbitrarily. Oh. Crevice. E. Crevasse. Oh. Cravat. Mm. Tie? Yes, that is word wow! <laughs> Ian, you've beaten the word wangerator, making you today's word wang. Uli, you've been word wangerated, making you today's anti-word wang. <laughs> Until tomorrow, good word wang! <laughs>